verdict form K, as to count one, uh, we, the jury, having found uh, the defendant, Kyler Hughes, guilty of voluntary manslaughter, assess and declare a punishment for voluntary manslaughter at 15 years, signed by the foreperson. On verdict form M, as to count two, we, the jury, have having found the defendant, Kyler Utes, guilty of murder in the second degree, assess and declare the punishment for murder in the second degree at life imprisonment. That was Judge William Collins reading the sentencing the jury recommended today. The jury does recommend that Kyler Utes get the maximum sentence for each of the cases he's charged in. And we're going to break that all down for you. I'm Haley Godburn. Today, I'm joined by my podcast co-host, Caitlin Brown, and by 41 Action News anchor, Caitlin Canute, who has been following this trial right along with all of us um, and has some more uh, detailed information on the sentencing to share with us today. So welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thanks. So I want to get right down to it. I know everybody wants to know how long is he going to be in prison? Um, And so that number is could be up to 45 years minus the time he's already served. Um, Caitlin Knute, uh, can you please break down um, that sentencing a little bit more for us? Yeah, absolutely, Haley. And you're absolutely right. So 45 years, that's if these two sentences run consecutively. So back to back, keep in mind that will be up to the judge to decide if they will run consecutively or concurrently, meaning at the same time. So assuming they run consecutively, you have the max of 15 years for Kar Kapetsky's death. You have the max of 30 years in Jessica Runyon's death. That's the 45. Keep in mind that Eust has been in prison now or in jail rather for um, roughly four years. There's credit for time served. Now, there's an important distinction. In Jessica Runyon's case, that was murder in the second degree. And actually, the jury gave him life. But in the state of Missouri, life is capped at 30 years. What's different about that, what that means is, so yes, he could get out in 30 years um, in in Jessica Runyon's case, but he will be on parole for the rest of his life. So that does mean someone will be tracking him for the rest of his life as part of that life sentence. Um, And in in Kara Kapetsky's case, so with the 15 years for voluntary manslaughter, he could be out um, on parole around six years. So he could only do six years on that case, according to legal experts I spoke to, um, going back to the second degree murder, he would be eligible for parole at 85% of his sentence. So that would be about 26.5 years in. So again, you've got the two cases. A lot depends on whether they run back to back or he serves at the same time. Um, and then he has, the op- he has the option of parole. So a lot of numbers going into this sentencing. Yeah, and to put it in perspective, if he served his maximum, you know, sentence with time served he would be around 70 by the time he Mm -hmm. got out on parole so just to put that in perspective for our listeners yeah but then if you flip it and you think okay so if judge collins says he's already been given the maximum both of these cases so judge collins makes the decision for those sentences to run um, concurrently at the same time so then you have the 30 years and then he's eligible for parole at 26 and a half, he's only 32 right now. So he could be getting out much, much sooner. So a lot of variables. And again, once we have the, the official sentencing, we'll, 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 have, we'll have a better idea of, of what he's really looking at here. And that official sentencing is scheduled for June 7th. So that's mm-hmm. when we'll hear from Judge Collins on that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I want to clarify on some of the language we've been using. I kind of said at the beginning that the jury recommends this sentence. Um, Caitlin, can you tell us why we don't word it as the jury has sentenced him um, and kind of walk us through that technicality? I think that can kind of trip a few people up. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Haley. It's, I mean, at this point, it's the jury makes the decision, but ultimately it's it's up to the judge. So the judge does have the option of overruling, um, but he he kind of is the one who makes it official. So so he's the one who gets in there and says, okay, this is it. This is the official sentencing. So for the most part, it really is just procedural. Again, the biggest thing we're looking for is, okay, will he serve more time back-to-back sentences or could they be combined, meaning he would serve less time? But, but yes, it is not official until the judge says it. This is the recommendation from the jury to the judge. And correct me if I'm wrong, he would be in a state prison, correct? He should be. That's a good question. I would have to double check. I don't think it constituted as a federal crime, so he should be in a state penitentiary um, versus a federal prison. Um, Although the FBI was involved as a missing persons case, I don't see any reason why he would be moved unless for some reason he qualified as a high risk prisoner um, because of the notoriety of this case. They could move to um, they could they could motion to have him move to another location rather than than one that's closer here to home but yes yeah it's my understanding don't don't quote me on this i'd have to go back and look at that but it's my understanding yes he would be in a state state prison and either one of you i want to get your thoughts on this what is kind of your interpretation of the jury's sentence they charged him with lesser charges than first degree murder and they came back with the maximum sentence so what does that kind of tell you about the jurors feelings and interpretations of this case. Well, I can tell you from talking to uh, some local defense attorneys, just kind of get their take on all of this. I mean, they said from the get-go, this would be really hard for the prosecution to prove because it's a circumstantial case. There was no hard evidence tying use to these crimes. So there were confessions, motive established, but it lacked the concrete evidence. So that's really hard for a jury to pull the trigger and say, yes, first degree murder, because again, first degree murder is life in prison with no possibility of parole. That's hard for a jury to do. So I I would guess this is speculation. They thought he did it, but they didn't feel that they could convict him of first degree murder in either of these cases. So they went with lesser charges, voluntary manslaughter, which would mean that they think it was a crime of passion. He got upset and just acted. Um, And in Jessica's second degree murder, not first degree, second degree, again, a lesser charge, meaning that that although it was lesser, they still think that he did it intentionally. Um, So they couldn't pull the trigger on first degree. They went with the next best thing. But then when it came to sentencing, they wanted to make sure that he would still be monitored. So they still went with a max there. So I think it, it wasn't quite what the families wanted, but the jury tried to still make sure that there was you know, adequate punishment for those crimes. That was my take. What about you, Caitlin? What did you take away from it? Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think quite frankly, they didn't like him, but they had, you know, it's hard to prove, you know, first degree murder when in Cara's case, there's so little evidence and Mm -hmm. it's been a decade and the witnesses, some have died. You know, I think it was just too hard for them to weigh that as first degree murder. And I, I wouldn't want to sit on this jury. That's a very hard decision to make. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that weighs on you afterwards. So, and I will point out, this was a jury of primarily women. And, um, I know as a woman, I, I don't take kindly if I think a man has killed another young woman. So like, Mm -hmm. I think, they probably did the best that they could 
if they thought he's guilty. Yeah. Well, it's something that I think, you know, our viewers, so many people have been so invested in this case for so long and they've been following all of the news reports. But remember, these jurors came from outside of the area, so they didn't have the background. They haven't seen all the news clips. They haven't seen the old interviews with Kyler Eust. You know, so they really came in with a fresh set of eyes and ears so they could only decide this case best based on what they heard in the courtroom. And there was a lot they didn't hear on both sides, you know? And so I think that's sometimes when people see this and how could they do that? How could they have not convicted him of first degree murder? Well, remember they had to base it just on the facts that they heard. And it was not, do you think he's guilty? It's a question of, did the state prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he did the things he's accused of? So I think, you know, quite frankly, they, they probably did the best they could given what, what they knew. Right, I think this was a great example of due process and how the judicial system works in uh, sometimes in a defendant's favor, you know, to give them a mm -hmm. fair trial. Yeah. Had Jessup Carter been alive. So, you know, the half brother that used pinned it on had Jessup Carter been alive, that could have been a game changer for the state because he could have come in and said, no, I didn't do it. Yes, this is what he said. I helped to cover up this evidence. You know, some of the things that I think the state certainly alluded to through their witnesses, but without hearing from him, you know, that that hurt their case. And had the state uncovered the hyoid bone, we talked about this on air and it's on the website, this tiny little bone in the throat that could have shown that the girls likely died of strangulation, but they didn't recover. That's a very, very small bone. And because the remains had been ex exposed in the open for so long, it, it's not a surprise they didn't find it. But again, they couldn't even prove the manner of death was consistent with what witnesses said, you know, used confessed to. So again, there, there were some things that the state didn't have. Had they had those, we might've had a, a very different outcome. Yeah, I've, I've certainly learned a lot throughout this trial about our justice process, like you mentioned, um, Caitlin Brown, and um, about kind of the evidence that the state has to look for in cases like these. Um, and you both kind of talked about the jury and the burden of this whole case on them. And that brings up another thing I want to talk about today, which was the victim impact statements and closing arguments that were made in court before the jury went out to deliberate on the sentencing this morning. And um, Ben Butler, who is the prosecuting attorney in Cass County, um, during his closing arguments, kind of looked at the jury and said, you know, you guys didn't ask for these decisions. And then he turned around and pointed at the victim's families and said, neither did they. And I thought that was just a really powerful moment. And the whole morning was very emotional. I know just me listening to it, I had to get up and walk away a few times because it was just, it was too much um, listening to the girls' families talk about it. Um, but they all got a chance to tell the jury how, how this has affected their lives. I think some of the most interesting things were we heard from members of the family we had not previously heard mm -hmm. from. You know, we've talked to Rhonda and Jim Beckford a lot through the years and uh, Jamie Runyon's, but we heard from Cara's dad today mm -hmm. and Jessica's dad and their siblings. And, you know, her brother, Cara's brother talked about growing up in a town where he was just basically associated as the boy with the missing sister and how mm -hmm. that has affected his life. And, I thought it was like gut-wrenching to hear that the Kopetsky family, the Beckford family had left Cara's phone on for till now, I think, and just call her phone every once in a while to hear her voice and how Cara's mom was glad her grandmother had passed right before the trial. So she didn't have to see that, you know, this lesser charge was given. And it was just, I think, a very emotional day 
to be in the courtroom and listen in. And I'm sure the jury weighed all that very heavily. Absolutely. And hearing, like you mentioned, hearing from the fathers of these two, these two young women, you know, who we have not heard from in the past and Karkopetsky's dad saying that, you know, they had gotten to a point in the relationship that was really special that he would, she would call, you know, at night, they would talk for 30 minutes and she'd speak very candidly about her future. And, you know, and he said, you know, at the time he just kind of took that for granted, you know, and now looking back, you realize how special that was, but he said, I'll never get to walk her down the aisle, you know? So you think about these families and all the opportunities that they've lost. So there's some closure for them now, but I mean, it's, it's not over for these families, you know, every holiday, every birthday, every anniversary of their death, regardless of what happened in court, they will always think about those loved ones who are missing from the table. And that's, that is, it, it is gut-wrenching. It's heartbreaking. When we also heard from people in Kyler Youth's life um, that gave testimony today, and mm-hmm. I didn't get to listen in on that, but Haley, do you want to point out anything interesting that you heard during that time period? What I thought was interesting was how far back in his past they had to go to find people who would get on that stand and say he was a good person, basically. Mm-hmm. They had some old friends in the past. Um, I think there was maybe one of them who still kept in contact with him in prison. Um, and, uh, the other two people were a little boy and his mother who used to live across the street from Kyler and his grandparents. And that was 15 years ago. And I just thought it was interesting that they talked about how they knew use as a child and I think the mother used the word precious to describe him. And what kind of stuck out to me was how almost, I don't want to say irrelevant, but irrelevant uh, some of that testimony was because who somebody is as a child is not who they are as an adult. So I just, that is what stuck out to me. And his late attorney on the case, Molly Hastings, got up in front of the jury for her closing arguments and said, you know, we're, we're not ashamed to be representing Mr. Eust and we will continue to do so throughout this entire process, mm-hmm. which, you know, leads us to believe there will be appeals, which we all kind of anticipated, but she made sure to note that they have faced ridicule for being associated with him, but they, um, they have fought through it. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point about the fact how far back they had to go. Although just to play devil's advocate, it is, you know, worth reminding people that he he was estranged from his parents. I mean, you know, during part of the uh, the kind of witness testimony on his behalf, it was mentioned that he he had said his father abused him, and obviously he had a very strained relationship from his mom. And we did hear earlier, you know, he was basically raised by his grandparents and who who are both now deceased, and you know, so he 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 didn't have a lot of family really to to come, come to his aid here during these troubling times, especially here at the end, but, but definitely noticeable that the friends were all from, from much further back um, in his youth, Haley. That's a great observation. I didn't think about, um, but you're right. It, it is interesting. I would, I would love to hear from his defense team, you know, that, that they made a point of that, they were convicted and standing by him, that they believed in him. You remember at one point when Eust was on the stand, he said, I told my attorneys this years ago, and they believe me. In fact, Hastings is representing me for free. So um, so, so I, I don't know what there is that they saw. Um, if they have information, we don't. But but it is it was interesting that they really made a point to say that they're standing by him. That's a great observation. I think something else we can point out is during some of the early years of this investigation, he was in a corrections facility in Oklahoma for drug charges. So Mm -hmm. like 
there's just more time periods where he was disconnected from family and people who might have known him. Mm -hmm. So that's why we haven't seen some of these people show up. Yeah, very true. Very true. All right. Well, thank you both so much for adding your perspective today. As a reminder for our listeners, you can find all of this content and anything else you could want to know about this case at kshb.com slash use trial. And today we want to close with some words from Cara and Jessica's mothers. Rhonda and Jamie came out just moments after the jury uh, handed down their sentencing and spoke to the media and just expressed their gratefulness for the community and their support. So we're going to leave you with their words for now. Well, I just want to start by saying that it's been a very long 14 years and we would not be here today if it wasn't for the amazing support of the community and you guys, the media, because you helped get our kids' stories out there. And you, if it wasn't for you, people wouldn't know as much about Cara and Jessica. I just want to thank the community also and you guys um, for allowing us to have the last four and a half year, four years of just not bugging us and just allowing us to concentrate on our girls. Um, we appreciate everybody's support and the community has been amazing. The love for the girls have just been, it's, it's overwhelming. And we just thank you guys for all your prayers, love and support. And we're just thankful. We're thankful to be where we are today because there were days where we didn't know if our girls would ever be found. And we're just so thankful that they were found and, and we're, we have them back now.